0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Zev Shalev. Zev is a three-time Emmy nominee and a Muro Award winner for his work as an investigative journalist and executive producer in Canada, the United States, and South Africa. He has worked at CBS News, CTV News, Global TV, and Oprah Winfrey's Harpo Productions. A highlight of his career was an interview with Nelson Mandela during the final days of apartheid. But you may know him best from some of his local projects including The Weekly with Wendy Mesley, E.T. Canada, the Toronto One Channel launch, and Canada's first reality series, U8 TV, The Lofters. In 2016, Zev founded the media company Narrative, an independent publisher of video, long-form content, and podcasts under the slogan, Where the Truth Lives. He is the host of Narrative Live with Zev Shalev, which has become one of the most influential podcasts and live shows in U.S. politics and global affairs. Plus, he doesn't mind getting into the odd scrap with Elon Musk. Welcome, Zef, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how
1: are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. This is a terrific show um, idea. And I am in Toronto, believe it or not. A lot of people think I do the show from the United States, from New York, but I am in Toronto doing it, um, which is a great place to observe what's happening in America when you're sort of a a little bit of a safe distance away.
0: It's a great neutral place to be. I normally would ask if your summer has been quiet and relaxing, but I know you have just gotten your narrative live show out from under an X or Twitter ban, and that you are currently up to your eyeballs digging into the various Trump indictments. I guess you're fortunate in that Donald Trump is the investigative journalism gift that never stops giving.
1: It truly never stops giving. I mean, I've been doing this specifically investigating Donald Trump since 2016, and there is just, I cannot believe this man is still alive and, you know, still operating as a political entity, but he is. And, uh, you know, that's very dangerous in my opinion. We have a lot to, lot to fear around his possible return to um, 1600 Pennsylvania, but let's hope that that won't happen. But, you know, that's, at the moment, he's still the front runner in the uh, in the Republican field, which is kind of uh, daunting and terrifying for all of us.
0: It's, it's an amazing story. As you know, it is yet a lot more to play out I want to jump right into uh, Elon Musk. He banned narrative, but the ban has been lifted. What is the story of your difficulties dealing with
1: uh, Elon Musk? Well, he didn't ban narrative. He banned us from doing live uh, live broadcasts, which is sort of our bread and butter, um, which is sort of a sneaky way of doing something. But then he reinstated us recently, also very quietly. Uh, So the history there is: I've, you know, as as the slogan says, you know, it's where truth lives, and I. Spend a lot of time revealing truths about uh, famous people, and you know it's probably a bad idea to do a show like that when some of these people are so rich and influential. Um, and in this case, he's very rich and very influential. And so I, I did a couple of shows when it first was announced that he was taking over Twitter or was interested in buying Twitter, and it revealed some interesting things about his relationships with, you know, China, for example, some relationships with intelligence agencies, and he's, you know, where his real allegiance lies. Which is not, you know, particularly with the United States or or uh, anything else in the northern uh, North American hemisphere. Uh, so I, you know, I will say he's uh, he got upset about that. He's got a famously thin skin, and uh, I was able to to get under it, and I think he got a little upset about it. But you're back. I'm back, and it's really good to be back. You know, I, I think he I put up a little bit of a public pressure campaign on him, saying, you know, you can't really do this. I mean, your whole thing was free speech absolutism or whatever he called it and and instead you know he comes in and and knocks out you know one side of political opinion and i consider myself very much an independent but i think his politics are quite far right leaning so for him i appear to be quite far on the left let's
0: please go all the way back and get the zeb's Shalev story with that lovely accent it is unlikely you were a native torontonian where were you born and please describe your upbringing
1: well, that's so very astute of you um it's uh it is a, it's not a canadian accent and it's not a canadian name i was born in israel just outside tel aviv in a place called jaffa uh, you know i lived there until i was four with my family and then my family decided to go to south africa of all places which was an unusual move but they did it anyhow and i have you know i had no choice in the matter i had to, to i arrived in south africa in johannesburg um knowing very little english knowing very little how to speak but um, you know, I learned to I learned to love South Africa. South Africa was an interesting place to grow up. And as a journalist, even though I was not at the time a journalist, it was an incredible place to grow up. I mean, you know, there's, if if I thought Israel was going to be an interesting place to grow up as a as a journalist, South Africa under apartheid was really fascinating, and it became a an incredible um, you know a launching pad for my journalistic career because I had no choice. I felt you know I to, when I started my career there, I just had no choice but to to do something that could challenge the existing norms of that country. It, just, it was impossible to imagine that, that that apartheid could continue in that way. So so I did that, I, and I, uh, I'll jump a little bit ahead here. Um, you know, I went to school there and all that kind of stuff, or maybe you want to hear about my upbringing, but it's a bit boring. Um,
0: well, what I want to hear about, Zeb, is, is that when you talk about a platform for your career, you really had an incredible experience at the, at the age of 16, with apartheid ending in South Africa. You cut school and went to Soweto to see Nelson Mandela's release from prison,
1: you have done your research. Well done. Me and my two buddies, we were like, you know, we were really the you know, naughty, mischievous kind of boys. and and we certainly did it in in a in a in a classy way. We at least we thought. So the three, you know, the three of us were very um we were bad boys, you know, we sometimes got into a little bit of trouble, but only because of politics, we knew, we didn't get into trouble for other things. It was mostly politics that we got into trouble. So maybe once smoking a joint was our other, you know, bad boy thing to do. But uh, we we realized that this moment that Nelson Mandela was being released from prison, which was, you know, a, a long process, obviously been in prison for 27 years, but even the return was going to be a couple of weeks. And it started off in Cape Town, and that was a very well-known televised event. And then he went uh, back to Soweto, his hometown, um, and we thought we had to go. It was about an hour outside of um, where we were at school, in a private Jewish day school of all things, uh, behind steel uh, walls and and barbed wire you name it it was impossible to get out but we we forged letters um to the principal of the school saying please let my uh, you know our our sons go to um go to see this historic event today so it was an honest letter but it was written from us not from our parents and uh, we hitchhiked our way which is really was not advisable at the time and this was Soweto oh, it you know a very tense period of time uh, the only way to get in there was through these white uh, taxi cabs, which was like white minivans, basically, which were for black people to get into the townships. They were not for you know spoiled white Jewish kids to go to the townships. But uh, we nevertheless we went in our school uniforms and everything, and uh, and hitchhiked all the way to Soweto, and then we got there and had a remarkable experience. I mean, the place was just uh, you know throbbing with people. There's so many, many people there. It was unbelievable, and, and we realized we may not even get into. The stadium, and once we'd managed to get inside the perimeter of the stadium, we just heard these voices from up above us, and we looked up, and there were these younger, you know, sort of Soweto teenagers, I guess, or older sort of teenagers, but young men, who were calling for us to to to, to come up where they were, and they lifted us up. I don't know how, because these these barricades between these two uh, stadium seats seating areas was quite high, but they somehow just lifted us up, and we were suddenly found ourselves quite close to the action, right in front of, well, not right in front, but pretty close to where Nelson Mandela was going to be. And they pushed us right to the front, and we were incredible uh, hosts during that day. They uh, explained everything that was going on. I mean, they wanted to see white people there too. It was good for the, for, the, um, for the optics of the thing, but they were incredibly nice. It was very sweet, and throughout the whole day, just kept interpreting things for us, explaining things to us. And then, of course, Mandela arrived by helicopter, and you know, this is someone that we had revered for a long time in our part of the world, in in South Africa. So I, uh, I was, you know, it was just like so you knew you were seeing, you were witnessing history. You really were witnessing uh, an an iconic moment in history. And uh, you know, as I subsequently knew, because uh, I met Nelson Mandela after the fact, this man is an incredibly spiritual, soulful human being who was able to. I can only describe it this way: He felt his soul into the room before he did. You know, in, and the, and that's the kind of presence he had, and he was able to sort of project that energy into the world that he lived in, and ultimately change the entire country and the entire trajectory of his history.
0: It is incredible. And, and correct me if I'm wrong: You had been taught to hate Nelson Mandela, but now you realize seeing him, like he was an inspiration.
1: Well, I was a bit of a rebel, you know, and and this. Credit to the school I was at. There was one history teacher who said, "I'm going to teach you uh, the stuff they tell me to teach you, but then I'm going to teach you what really happened." And and they actually got us prepared for those classes by you know regurgitating these pre pre -pre produced uh, answers to questions, so they could spend the rest of the time telling us what was really going on. And she was the first person who sort of opened my eyes to what is in you know the 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 incredible uh, you know wrongs of of apartheid and how people were being treated and how we had no idea that people were being treated that way and it was it was very fascinating and that's what led me and a couple of other cases sort of launch this this little anti-apartheid organization at at high school and and so we were unique i mean most people did not get 16 or 17 give a damn about nelson mandela or anything like that we were just very engaged in that process and we we'd learned that this huge struggle was happening right right outside and i had to my one best friend was the son of a of a very liberal judge uh, who'd later become a very li- famous liberal judge. And my other one was a, the son of a headmaster with uh, also a pretty liberal background. So I was lucky to, to have them as good friends and they were able to share with me what was really going on. Because, you know, many white South Africans were opposed to apartheid.
0: Well, let's fast forward a little. In the last days yeah. of apartheid, while you were still in your 20s, you set up the country's first interview with Nelson Mandela
1: after his historic vote. Yes, indeed. You know, it's interesting because Nelson Mandela. This is the great thing about broadcasting. You know, just keeping on the topic a little bit here that the the relationships you build as a journalist um, throughout a period of time of stories with stories is 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 ultimately what pays back at the end of the day. So, you know, for the years that um, I was working this radio station, um, this independent radio station called Radio Seven Hundred Two, it broadcast from the independent homeland of Botswana which was about an hour and a half outside of Johannesburg, um, and technically did not fall under the state controls. So we were allowed to do whatever we wanted to do without state censors in our... in. Um, well, we had state censorship rules, but no state censors in our newsroom. And as long as we did some of our broadcasting from the mountains, which is what we call this mountain studios, uh, which is really a studio on top of a mountain, uh, and then we did half of it in the... In, we could do the rest of it, the other half, in the studio in Johannesburg. Um, and no one would say we were breaking the rules. So we were the only independent radio station and only independent news outlets, really, except for some um, except for newspapers uh, in in Johannesburg. and um, and in that role, we we covered the end of apartheid as independently and as as you know robustly as any independent news organization would. We were a non-racial root newsroom. we were we had reporters from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, and I was lucky to get a job there, and I was very, very young, I was just out of school. And um, we covered the end of apartheid. Like the end of the com- uh, apartheid should should be covered, you know, fairly and honestly, and with a perspective of of its wrongs and rights, not like the state broadcaster. And in that process, I became very close to the, to you know, um, to the people in, like, inside the struggle, whether you know it's uh, Nelson Mandela or Chris Hani um, or Joe Slovo, a lot of the big names of of the times, or Ramaphosa, Thabo Mbeki, those people. And um, the night before the elections. I get a call that they're not going to give us the first interview with um, Nelson Mandela the next day. They're going to give it to the state broadcaster, the SABC, like the actual, like the devil broadcaster themselves. So I, I called Carl Niehaus, who was who um, was Nelson Mandela's uh, spokes- uh, spokesperson, and I was like, Carl, how can you possibly do this? How can you do this? It's such a, you know, you really after all we've done for you and all this kind of stuff. And he, and he really, he actually agreed. He, uh, he relented. He gave me the interview. He said the only way we can do this is if we do it on a phone on the way from the boating station to wherever he's going next into the trans sky in the middle of nowhere there's barely a public cell phone around cell phone signals are crappy i said i'll take it don't worry we'll figure it out and so we did the next day um i'm looking at my phone the phone's ringing and there's the and oh god that's him i can see him on tv so um i said hello congratulations to him and i realized he's hard of hearing he can't hear a thing so, um, and he's, he wants to go to a public telephone, and they won't let him go to a public telephone because he's now the new president of, or about to become the new president of South Africa, and he can't be going to a public telephone, and uh, and that's why we landed up at uh, getting that first interview. And he was he was on the air for like two minutes, maybe three. Maybe it was a very jumbled sort of interview, but he you know he just he knew to talk, and he just kept talking, and it was it was really uh, a really fun time. He's great. I mean, I mean, Mandela's a, it was an incredible figure.
0: We'll talk about a front row seat to history.
1: It's incredible. Yeah. yeah, that was really special. And then, you know, the it set up my um my thirst for the truth. I mean, I think the thing that ended apartheid in South Africa was the truth. Um, and it's been my, you know, the guiding call throughout my career, no matter where I've worked, has always been to try and, you know, that that knowing the truth is really important. Yeah, broadcasting is a career, broadcasting is a whole lot of things. You can become famous, you can become rich, neither of which are true for me, but the uh, but, the, but, you know, if you're a journalist who really cares about the craft of journalism and really cares about what we care to do when you're a journalist, it's, it's to report to the story and, and you can't pick and choose what part of the story you want to report. You have to report what's out there and fairly, and that's your job. And you do that for the betterment of society. So society can sustain itself, um, going forward. And if you don't, it's, um, you know, you land up with an apartheid system or a system which is not fully transparent. And and that's always a dangerous place for people to be in. You know, it's the very same threat that the United States is facing right now. Consequently, the rest of the world is going to be facing if America does turn out to be a dictatorship. You know, the, it's it's no fun having living under a state-controlled, state-policed uh, country. You don't know how bad it feels until you're in it. Um, so, uh, you know, for those people who think, oh, America deserves it or America's, you know, everything, that America, it's Americans' fault that this is where we're at. It's not true. Ultimately, you know, this is um, this is going to impact everybody and we need to take it very seriously about what's going on uh, south of the 49th and, and make sure that they, you know, they have the support of all Canadians.
0: These are absolutely uncertain times. Zev, I want to ask, why did you move to Canada and how did you get
1: into TV production? So it's the end of apartheid. It's over. Um, the story gets very dark quite quickly. There's a lot of violence at the turn of, uh, from going from, a uh, apartheid south africa to a non-apartheid south africa i was covering the news but it was getting incredibly depressing to do you know, i was still a kid really i was just a young guy when i first got the job at that radio station i was 18 so i i you know i just couldn't deal with the amount of death and destruction we were, we were reporting on every day it was it got to the point where my entire newscast were 10 people dead here seven people dead here is five people dead there and i'd at one point, came they had to go and report um, on a on a massacre, uh, a massacre of a of, of group of, you know, of people on a one of those white minivans, and that I think sort of made me realize I didn't want to be there anymore. I just couldn't stand the the reality of this, of that truth in some ways, and that's you know maybe my weakness and my falling. Uh, but I uh, I needed to go somewhere, and my parents had had as an insurance policy, I guess for themselves, had had uh, got an American. I'm sorry, Canadian passports. And I was like, well, um, I, I qualified because I was still a student, technically. I was still a student at the time, um, going to university under under their passports. I thought, well, I'll go. I mean, they weren't going to go. I would, but I said, I'll go. I, I can go, so why don't I? So I called my mom up, said, I'm going to do this. Flew to South Canada a few months later. Uh, I landed in Toronto with them. And they dropped me off in um, you know, a place in the East, I think it was Bathurst and St. Clair area. And, um, I had, uh, $2,000 in my bank account and it was snowing and it was cold and I'd never experienced either of those things. And then they, you know, drove away. They (laughs) left me there and, you know, that's, I had no choice but to try and make it. So that's when I got to Canada.
0: Wow. Well, you jumped right in. You, you've had a varied career. I want to cherry pick Zeb, if you don't mind, a few of your experiences that will resonate with our listeners. 1996, for three years, you were the executive producer of Canada AM, the morning show on CTV News.
1: Yes. What a great show. I love Canada AM. It was Valerie Pringle and Dan Matheson were my were my anchors. And Jeff was doing the weather. And it was um it was a it was a great show. I loved it. And i had no idea why they made me the executive producer. It sort of seemed completely weird. I don't think I can name all all the provinces. It was like um, but at the time, I think they were just like, "This is this so different. His opinions are so different. His ideas are so different. Let's just see what he does." And it was CFTO, right? I mean Scarborough, which is like it's when you think about network television, that's not what you think of. You know, you think CFTO is like a, a local TV station in the boonies. It looked like that at the time. Um, now, of course, it's a, it's a very different o- operation. And and CTV, which was based at CFTO at the time, has grown to be a major major force. But at the time, you know, Yvonne Fitzson was trying to make it into something, and it was just a collection of TV stations, and And uh, one of the things they were going to do is just try to redo the morning show, uh, and I remember having to look at Valerie and Dan and saying, you know, those 12-minute interviews you're doing about American politics, it's American-Canadian politics at 7 a.m. in the morning, we're going to cut those down to like 4. <laughs> and they're <were> like, what? <laughs> How can you do that? How can you possibly do a four-minute interview? So. We learned. We all had to learn all these things and we sped up the pace of that show and turned it into a, in a, more of an American style. Uh, I, I won't lie, an American style morning show, but still very Canadian. Um, and it uh, was a good three years. I mean, the, the viewers responded; they really liked the show. So, and of course, with Valerie, and I mean, Valerie Pringle is such a gem, such a gem of Canadian or any broadcasting. I just love her to death. She's, uh, you know, there are some funny stories. And it, should I share one with you, if I, if you don't mind? Please do. You know, we were sent into, there were two stories which really stand out for me about Valerie Pringle. One of them was going, being sent into the ice storm. I don't remember the year, but Montreal was, was you know, drenched with water and frozen over and it was shut down, no power to the island at all. And I was like, oh, the story seems to be going on forever. And then they told me, you want some good news have? And I was like, what? You're going in tomorrow morning to the, to the storm. So I was like, but there's no places to stay. How can you possibly send us in? No, we think we have a hotel room for you. All right. So Valerie and I get onto this Air Canada plane where there are literally no people in the plane because it's going to Montreal and away from it. It's the two of us. And it, you know, as it departs, uh, Pearson, I was like, oh, this is really strange, isn't it, Valerie? There's no one on here. She was like, yeah, yeah, it's a bit weird. So we land in Montreal, and uh, it really is kind of a, an interesting landscape where everything is frozen over. And I get a call from the Toronto newsroom, and they're like, um, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I was like, well, let's start with the bad news. Well, we couldn't get you a hotel room. And uh, the good news is you're staying at the Red Cross shelter with, um, you know, everybody else um, overnight, which sounds OK. I mean, I was like, OK, I'm probably not going to sleep very much anyhow. But Valerie is Valerie. You know, I have such a remarkable, remarkable uh, respect for her. And I couldn't imagine asking her to do that. But I did. And, you know, she's so you know, this is a test of a real broadcaster who really did not even like skip a beach. It's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. No problem. We'll do that. So we go to the Red Cross shelter, and there are literally, you know, hundreds of people, like in this giant, in this giant uh, gym, like uh, it must be like a school gym of some sort. And they very kindly let us sit in the, um, use the one of the offices as our own little uh, area, and we could sleep there. So They gave us these regulation uh, stretchers, which was also interesting to sleep on. And the two of us were sli- sleeping next to each other, really close quarters. And I it was like, I snore, so I didn't want to like. I did not want to wake her up because I needed her to get a good sleep. So I just basically still slept a little eyes open all night. You know, as we're getting ready for bed, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna wear what I'm wearing sort of just like a t shirt and, and uh and and shorts and just uh, old long sweats. And then I was gonna get under the you know, I was gonna get in bed and sleep there. But of course she arrives in the, in these beautiful satin pajamas which, you know, it was really great. I mean, they're really beautiful-looking black satin with a white lighting. I thought, wow, oh, those are terrific. But that's how you're going to go to sleep in the Red Cross shelter. And she does. And uh, she had a good night's sleep. And then the next morning, we woke up the entire, um, the entire room full of people who had been through so much. And we, at 5 a.m. in the morning, turned all the lights on them and started broadcasting from there. Um, and it was a great show. And I have to give her a lot of credit because she... Is just the ultimate. She's an ultimate journalist. She's got total curiosity. Will go and do anything, and such a pro. And then also such a remarkable broadcaster. You know, she's one of those broadcasters who has never lost her, her sense of self. You know, she's never performing. It's always her. Um, and uh, I, you know, I miss her on on Canadian television and uh, and and radio. I think she's one of the special giants of uh, of Canadian uh, broadcasting.
0: She absolutely is. And, and certainly I can tell from your story that you love the real, you love innovation, and it certainly helps explain the next project that I want to talk to you about. January 2001, U8 TV, The Lofters, was the world's first completely online TV channel and Canada's first reality television series. It featured future media personalities, including Jennifer Hedger, Arissa Cox. Was this your reaction to MTV's The Real World?
1: A little bit, but it wasn't really a reaction to that. You know, we had done at Canada, AM, my producing colleague was also another Canadian legend, Fiorella Grossi and I, who was looking for some uh really unusual things to do. And uh, I'd read that in Amsterdam they'd done an experiment where they'd put two people in a in, in a museum and had them survive online just in what they could order online in a in the museum. And I thought that's a great idea. So I mimicked that idea. We did two guys a guy, a girl in an apartment or something like that. And, and, and they had to survive for a week. We gave them enough money to survive for the week, but they could only buy purchases online. This was well before Amazon or anything like that was, was around. It was the early days of e-commerce, and we were trying to show how easy it was or not easy it is to survive online. And it wasn't that easy, actually. They could order some things very easily, but a lot of things they could not because certainly was no you know, Inst- Instacart or anything like that at the time so that idea made me because we, we were film, filming them and streaming them all the time and because that was also a new thing streaming them was a new thing and i was like what if that was actually a concept for a tv show what if we actually had people living in a space where they were also working as tv producers and we would show them 24 7 online and cover their lives and we came up with this my sister um who's a lovely lily uh, joined the two of us and con- started conceptualizing this concept which really was a first of its kind. I mean, I don't think anyone was crazy enough to have done it again, because uh, it is—it's a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot to deal with. But uh, uh, it was great. Uh, Michael McMillan, who is outstanding as a human being and an innovator himself at Lions Atlantis, and Barbara Williams, who became a really close friend of mine and and supporter, and we became also just uh, so close throughout the years. You know, Michael and Barbara really saw in Filisjafi. Oh, we really saw the potential of something like this as, as being a breakthrough. And I, you have to credit them because no one in Canada would have been uh, that willing to take the risk on, on on three guys like us who just had this idea on piece of paper as a PowerPoint. And we showed, you know, we, we we went to see Michael McMillan at like four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. We gave him the PowerPoint, 10-page PowerPoint. and He was like, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll, call it, we'll tell you for sure tomorrow, but we're going to do this. Uh, and I was like, whoa, my, you know, I, this was Michael McMillan himself and like just one of the giants of Canadian, t- of Canadian TV. And I was like, I cannot believe he's going to do this. And then, of course, we had to prove it. Like We had to actually do all the work around how much money it's going to cost, cost of fortune at the time, because none of the technology was technology you could get t- today where I can broadcast streaming like this. Back then, you had to have streaming equipment and encoders and all sorts of things to get a streaming signal up. Plus, the production was just, uh, you know, over the top with so many cameras and and following people's private lives, which sometimes you wanted to do, and oftentimes you didn't, um, you know, was 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 uh, was a very interesting show. It lasted for like a season and a half. I'm still amazed that it lasted that long. We did a live show every three times a week. We turned their lives around. It so you know, cutting a live 30 minute show every every uh, a, a soap opera every day, every three times a week. Sorry, uh, on a daily basis is very very difficult.
0: Well, anybody of a younger generation will say what's he type what's the big deal Ab? this was
1: 2001 yeah yeah this is really early on this was it was before big brother that's how early it was like it was that early and we were going to be the canadian i guess you know competitors to big brother but you know canada doesn't take these take these ideas as well as uh, as other countries they they i think they were couldn't believe what they were seeing we had the first openly gay person on tv who was describing all sorts of things that Canadians had never heard before, Mathieu Chantalois, who now works at the Canadian Media Fund. And Mathieu, you know, he did the show called So Gay TV that we produced, and nothing in Canadian television had ever been called So Gay TV. And I, you know, I have a Canadian Screen Award nomination here with So Gay TV on it. I think it's probably the only time it's had those, the gay part of it was on a um, on one of their nominee, nominations. So, so I, I, you know, I... Credit to uh, all that crew, Arisa Cox was there, Jennifer Hedger. I mean, these are people who turned out to have really great careers out of this thing. And once I remember Jennifer Hedger was in tears outside the loft. She was just, oh my God, just total tears. I was like, Jen, what's wrong? What's wrong? It can't be, you know, yes, we had an exciting day on the show and there was like all these you know, yelling and screaming going on, but you know, it's what we're doing. She's like, no one's ever going to hire me. No one's ever going to work with me. I can't imagine anyone seeing this and putting me on on TV. And I was like, Jen, I guarantee you, of all the things I can guarantee you out of the show is that you're going to be a major, major broadcaster in sports and you don't have anything to worry about. Um, and that this is going to be her stepping stone. So she, uh, I, I thankfully, I was right about that or I'd owe her a lot. Um, so I'm glad she, uh, she succeeded as well as she has. You were
0: certainly prescient there, Zev. And another area you decided to take an in innovation and a challenge was the late, great television channel, Toronto One. Now, CKXT began broadcasting September 19, 2003, on behalf of Craig Media, as a general interest independent station branded Toronto One. Tell us about Toronto One.
1: Toronto One was, uh, you know, it was a really special place. It was going to be sort of the new version of uh, of a voice of Toronto like the city TV was, but a, and sort of a modernized version. It was very much built on the idea of diversity and creating diverse voices on the air. English-speaking diverse voices, but they really were interested in creating something that was unique there you know it was a very solid marketplace by 2003 and mornings were difficult and prime time was difficult but we went ahead and barb williams it, you know is there's just not, nothing that can be said about how influential and important barbara williams has been to canadian television i mean she is uh, a good friend and i, I will say that is in passing because what she really is also is just a complete idol to me she is a remarkable um businesswoman who is able to uh, manage teams and create change and understand processes and is able to trans has been able to transform alliance atlantis uh, you know into can west and uh, um, global into can or global into can west was the other thing or maybe it was the other way around um but you know the idea that She was able to take these these disparate entities, merge them together, and grow something so beautiful out of them. Uh, All those channels on Alliance Atlantis that we like so much—you know, the slices of the world or whatever they're called now—those are all her creation ultimately. And uh, and one of those, and she left Alliance briefly to go and do uh, Toronto One for for Drew Craig, and it was incredibly risky. We set up a little office in in Yorkville. It was just the two of us, I think, or like three of us at the start of it. And you know, I had to do mornings. An evening news show, and then we're going to do something late at night. With the evening news show, is called Toronto Tonight. Sarika Segal and Ben Shin, who were the hosts. Uh, we did uh, something at, at at night called the A List with Roz Weston and Billy Holiday. You know, which is just a was out of a late night bar. Really, we just them talking about the news of the day. It was a drunken rioters thing, and and then we did the mornings, um, and uh, you know, amongst the many people we had on was uh, Mark McAllister, um, uh, Wei Chen was there. Uh, I'm, I'm going to blank on some names here. And I sh- Chen Chen, Dina Pugliesi, yeah. Natasha Ramasai. Let me tell you something about Dina Pugliesi. I mean, she is, she will, you know, we were like, I was like trying to find talent that was very unique. I didn't want to hire anyone from other stations. I just want to find new, great, interesting people. So we put out a call for people, and she walks into our you know offices in this yorkville she's stunning obviously she's the most beautiful woman and she was wearing um this pink uh floral summer dress that looked impeccable on her and she was holding two uh ice cream cones which were dripping all over her hands cuz it was so hot outside um they were strawberry ice cream with a matching a dress and i and i just took like one look at her and i was like you just have to be on television. You have to be on television. So I walked her into into Barb's office and I said, this is going to be the host of The Morning Show. I'm convinced of it. And uh, there, there she is. And there she was. You know, she's uh, she's turned that into an incredible career um, and and good for her. And then we did something called The A-List, which was a night, uh, Dina, which Dina hosted as well with John Nightingale. It was the first entertainment show. It's precursor to Entertainment Tonight Canada. It was fun. I liked that show a lot. It was really a different kind of show. And then Ben and Sarika, you know, uh, we've lost Sarika, unfortunately, uh, but, the, but Ben is um, it's so brilliant of him and, and risk-taking to leave the CBC in his comfortable zone at the CBC where he could have done anything to come and try to do this uh, weird, funky uh, 7 p.m. show in a white set with, uh, you know, we were really trying to change things up and uh, he was so game for it and willing to do it and uh, always positive. You know, it, it, when, we realized it, when we all realized it wasn't working, you know it was a difficult. It's always the worst time when you realize a show's going to die. And you're like, oh, this thing is not going to survive, but you're still going to put it out every day. And he is he was the best during that whole process. He kept the team together. He kept people so enthusiastic and supportive. And you'll you appreciate this one anecdote I know I'm taking up too long, but the, Moses Neimer calls me up. He said you know I knew Moses sort of knew Moses back and forth and at the time because he, he you know he and I was somehow linked together. As uh, And uh, when I arrived at Toronto, one, he calls me up and it's like, Sam is Moses. And it's like, all hail to Moses. I think Moses, you know, changed television more fundamentally for it. Everybody than anybody else in Canada. Like, I mean, American television is Moses Leimer. Uh The way they do morning news, there is a Moses Leimer, um, you know, reflection. And uh, Moses was like, you're in a very exciting time, Zev. I said, why is that? He says, because there's nothing you can do that's wrong right now. And I, and he was right. He was right. You know, he landed up uh, making a lot of mistakes on the air and, and not succeeding. But he was so nice and generous of him to give me a call. And, uh, uh, you know, we've spoken over the years. He's, uh, you know, I think of all these great names that have made Toronto television, uh, City TV and, and Moses is uh, really stand out, you know, really, really stand out. Uh, I think I don't think there's anything been as innovative as City TV in 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 broadcasting. And it would be great um, if they could re, you know, bring some of that back into the the city TV world.
0: Yeah. And we'll, we'll certainly see what happens with Zora Media. That seems mm. to still be evolving day by day. Yeah. Zev, I want to give a shout out to my baby sister, Paula, who was working at Toronto One as an intern and got my wife, Vicky and I invited to the launch party. Oh the gosh. main entertainment at your launch party was Moist. And uh, I might add that Moist keyboardist Kevin Young is coming up soon on this very
1: podcast. So those were uh, high flying wings wow. of Toronto One. I remember that party. I, I, I remember that party too. Wow. That's so interesting. I, um, we threw lots of parties, you know, in uh, all these launches of different events and, and we tried to make big splashes out of them. And it was very unusual, I think, for Canadian television to have those. But I remember Paula and I remember her, uh, you know, everyone on that team had to do so much to get that stuff on the air. It was so such a lean team and it, they were terrific. Everybody on that show did, did, did really well on that station. And, Oh, nice to, nice to know that you're Paula's uh, older brother. That's great. I'm
0: very proud of her. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Zev Shalev, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Michael Landsberg, Gord Martineau, Dr. Brian Goldman, Raina Duris, Terry O'Reilly, Cheryl Hickey, and Ted Wollishan. How they did it, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 Wherever you get your podcasts. In September 2005, you started working at CanWest, programming for Global and E Networks. You kicked off a little show known as ET Canada. What do you remember about that launch?
1: Well, this is also Barbara Williams. You know, Barbara had been offered a job out of, you know, Toronto One died by being taken over by what they—I don't remember the name—in in Quebec, there one of the big broadcasting groups in Canada. I just can't, it's not connecting with me right now. But, um, you know, they were right-wing in their approach to news, and they were going to turn into something very different. And I could tell in my first meeting with them that it was not personal, but oh, this was not going to not going to work out. So I like looked at Barb, and I was like, what are we going to do now? You know, we've sort of we, we reprogrammed the channel into something else, and, you know, it was going to survive. But we, like, wanted... I was like, i got to get out of here. So she gets a job at, at Canwest, at Global. And Global at the time was not... Um, was not what it is today i mean global at the time was a very was a third a distant third i think and a channel in uh in toronto network in toronto it was it had great ambition but it was you know the studios were clunky and old it, it made cfto look modern and and sophisticated and you know we had to go in there and when i when i talk about barb's amazing ability to make change happen she transformed that place uh, with an incredibly capable team of just into into a really modern uh, broadcaster, a really broad- broadcasting network. And um, and sh- and we were going to do something at 7 o'clock. We were going to do an entertainment show like The A-List at 7 o'clock. going to be a bit complicated because I can't really be- move the people from The A-List over to that show because I had a, uh, you know, a non-compete agreement. We are going to try to do something else. And you know we came up with the idea of why don't we try get entertainment tonight, Canada? I'm not sure who originated that idea. I'm going to give Barb the credit for it. And how we were going to do it is we we're going to go down and just literally pitch the story to them, pitch the show to them. So Barb and I, we flew down to L.A., you know, and L.A. is L.A. It's so, like, lovely and splashy. And uh, we're staying in this nice hotel in Beverly Hills, but a very, like, low version of the nice hotels in Beverly Hills. And we were sitting um, by the pool at afternoon and... uh we had decided to, you know, we were running through what it was going to be like the next day, and we were going to go see the people at, at Entertainment Tonight and tell them the pitch. And I was terrified. I mean, for all the things I'd done, I don't know, The the there's always this allure of American television in Canadian television where you're always like, you know, you're not really making it if you're making it in Canadian television, only making it in in American television, if, in Canadian television if you get to American television. That's not true, by the way. Everyone could disabuse themselves of that notion. But uh, there was a thinking, certainly at the time that that was you know you had to try and make it to the states because then you'd be special. So I was terrified going in to see this room full of executives. It must have been you know, thirty people in a room, and they were like, "All right, what do you want?" And Barb looks at me. Barb does this like a great introduction, and then she's like, "Okay, Zeb." And I was like, "Oh, well, let me pitch you this idea." And I must have been on a ton of adrenaline. They really uh, liked the pitch, and they'd done something that they did something that they'd never done before, which is let another country actually have the entertainment tonight brand and use it in a different way i mean it's a it's a very special brand it's existed for 50 years or something uh maybe longer so they were very protective over it and rightly so and to let us have complete independence on a show like entertainment tonight canada and transform that brand into something that was very different for them um was was remarkable and very special and of course the cheryl hickey as you know she was on your show just a few weeks ago and uh you know, I, I look at, and she is just incredible, incredible what she's turned her career into because this, the transformation in her from the traffic person at Global, which is, you know, Barbara's like, will you please talk to Cheryl? Maybe Cheryl's going to be okay. And I was like, there's no way Cheryl's going to be okay. I mean, let's be, t- let's be completely honest about this. So she's like the traffic helicopter thing. It's like, it's not entertainment tonight, you know, it's entertainment tonight's merry heart, you know? Um, so I was, I was like, ok, I'll talk to her. And I, I sit with Cheryl at the at, behind this the this studio at uh, at Global. And she's actually has something about her is really remarkable, right? I mean, she's got this real star quality, but you didn't see it in the traffic copter under the noise of the traffic copter. And, you know, it's just uh, it's just seemed, it just wasn't carrying in the way that she carries in real life. And I was like, she's really, really special. You know, she's got this kind of like, innocence but but super professional and super um on top of it and knows her stuff really well she's she's like zev i really want to do this i really want to do this and i was like well we're going to interview like everybody we interviewed everybody for that show and then at the final analysis we're just looking at this board and i was like you know what barb i think you were right i think cheryl is actually the right person for this so it took some work like i mean cheryl it, We had three weeks to launch and we had to like change cheryl like she which is a traffic copter, like the, the walking down a ramp, and we had a ramp twice as long as the one in in, uh, in in L.A., which Mary Hart not like. They would not let me even walk Cheryl down the ramp on the first show, but they they finally let me um, because it was longer than theirs. And so um, you know I having to walk and walk and talk on a ramp every night, talking to a a, a moving uh, jib for your your main intros is actually kind of difficult in a dress in a beautiful dress with high heels um you know full makeup and you know all the world is watching and she worked so hard at getting all that choreography right and the the she changed the way she was she was speaking she just grew into into this incredible broadcast almost overnight and uh i remember when i walked her into the set the first time i walked her into the set i said are you ready for this and she was like, okay, okay. And she, was like, she wasn't really sure what to expect when she walked in. And uh, I, you know, we'd spent a lot of money on a real entertainment tonight set. It was beautiful. One of the nicest things that I'd ever worked on in this huge studio space. And she walked in and she was like, she was jaw dropped. And I was like, okay, welcome home. This is your new home. And, you know, why don't you take a walk down the ramp? And uh, and she did. And it was really, uh, it was the start of a very, very special time for her and for all of us. We were, lo- I, that show us. So much fun. We had such a good time. And it's, you know, it was the only show I've worked on that was a break. I did from the first show. And like it was just successful. Uh, people really liked it.
0: Well, without being self-serving, I want to encourage all the listeners to go back and listen to Cheryl Hickey's interview on this podcast because what's fascinating, Zev, is you hear from her side, just what you alluded to. Uh, she, she mentioned for some reason her desk happened to be along the hallway where everyone was coming mm-hmm. to meet you and Barb to be interviewed. And she had noted the same thing. Every broadcaster, model, announcer, celebrity had been in front of her desk to meet you. And then you ended up choosing her. Obviously, great choice. She's still doing it today. Please talk about her partner, another fantastic person who has been on this podcast before, Rick Campanelli.
1: We were so lucky on that show. Our first uh, season was, we were just so, well, all these shows, I feel so blessed by all the talent that I've worked with. and. And Rick, you know, Rick was at a time and at Match Music that it was sort of... He was no longer Rick the Temp. You know, it was like he was too old to be Rick the Temp. Um, He was going to have to be something else. And they didn't really know how to evolve him. And, you know, the opportunity came up to talk to him. And I was like, you know, it was going to be important for us to have a real entertainment person on the show because Cheryl was a traffic person still. So it wasn't, you know, we needed to have like a couple of real people with real entertainment credentials. Uh, And Rick is... Just this gem of a human being, and so uh, wonderful and hardworking and and caring. And he came in with such a, you know, the thing that everyone loved about Rick as Rick the Temp is his, you know, his enthusiasm just shines through in everything he does. And he's so excited to be there and he's so on top of it. And I, I didn't know if they were going to get along. I had no idea if these people were going to like each other. But then, you know, when we told Cheryl, I don't think she knew what to think when she thought, she didn't think there was going to be a co-host. And then I was like, it's Rick the Temp. And she was I think she was like, didn't quite understand how that was going to work. She'd never really had a co-host and it, they turned out to be so sweet together. And he is, you know, just, uh, again, when I, when I worked with American broadcasters and American talent, they're very different to species to Canadian broadcasters who are always so accessible, hardworking, uh, you know, lovely people who really, really put their all into these shows. Uh, it's, I know not just American broadcasters I've worked with, they're, they're under very different kind of pressures, but um, there's something about the Canadian mentality which makes, uh, makes uh, the collaboration or production much easier.
0: Well, it is certainly time to talk about American pressures. I want to ask how you made your way to, and I'm going to put it in quotes, the television big leagues based on your previous comments, and moved to New York City to work at CBS.
1: I am absolutely not sure how, but I know that it must have had something to do with Entertainment Tonight, which was a CBS brand. Then they obviously had identified me as someone who's interesting to bring down there. But I've actually had an agent in the states for a while, and he had submitted my name into the the early show at CBS was um, a mess, to put it mildly. This was a the third in the in the three TV shows. It was still very important to have that show, but the internal dynamics of that show, the the uh, chemistry on the set the the staff all you know it's a, a very difficult place to work partially because you know a, an american morning news show will run 70 million dollars a year i my biggest budget in canada was five million dollars canadian a year so when you get handed 70 million dollars to spend on a tv show for two hours every day i was like what do you do with 70 million dollars i mean and soon you realize that there's a team of thousands that are putting together these shows, which is why American television looks like it does. Because at the time, I mean, now these days, it's, you know, you couldn't tell the difference. But back then, it, it American television just looked different than Canadian television. And partly because they had all this people there. And hundreds of people. I had 300 people working on the show at, at one point. And I, was, I didn't even know who they were. So um, I get there nice Canadian boy. I'll say Canadian boy because that's how I felt like I'd raised myself in in Canadian TV and it's a shark's tank. I mean, the place you walk in there and it is people just want to kill you from day one. They're like, what are you doing here? Who are you? How did you get this job? They're our jobs and we're going to destroy your life. I mean, they will, they will to your face. And uh, is it just, so it is remarkable that I survived the two years that I did there. And it was incredibly fun. And, it, those were the years that barack obama was um, he became the the president and uh through entire his entire campaign, which me was very very special because I got to meet him and 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 I got to know him and you know we were so blessed on that show again with people like Harry Smith, who's just an ultimately ultimate professional you know the man knows how to tell a story like nobody's business, and he is such a you know the reason we got such a lot of access to Barack Obama is because Harry Smith had the foresight to know that the very start of the presidential campaigns for Barack Obama, that uh, he was going to be the guy, and he stuck with um, with Barack Obama throughout that whole period of time. So when I first um, met uh, President Obama with Harry, you know, he was like, "I will do anything for Harry Smith," and he meant it. Um, and uh, you know, we got subsequently quite a few interviews with him. And 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 Harry just t- Harry pulled me aside one day, and he, I remember this beautiful lesson that he told me. And he taught me, and he's like, "You know what you're doing, Zev." you're building bridges, but they're not leading anywhere. And I was like, what is it? That's really wild. Let's that whole process and internalize it for a while. I said, like, what does he actually mean? And what he meant was that stories weren't moving to, you know, weren't landing. The American television is very good at landing a story. In Canadian television, we're much more, we talk around the issues, but we don't like become too conclusive about it because we might offend people if we if we say those things. But American television is very good at like building something and then it lands it at the end it's a, it's definitive when it's when it's over you know and he told me how to do that and he told me some incredible uh storytelling um techniques and and you know he was also such a professional there was the one morning at, at the uh barack obama inauguration not inauguration the um at the convention when he did that thunderous um speech yeah. was it in t- were they in detroit no they were not in detroit denver maybe out of denver i think and the next morning, we were typically doing a shot of a diner the next morning, as as is the normal thing on morning TV. And Harry and I are like, you know, it's not been a lot of sleep from that night before because it was such an exciting night of seeing President Obama speak. That morning, Bob Schieffer calls me up, it's 6.55 a.m. It's five minutes before airtime. It's like, Sev, it's Bob. It's like, oh, hi, Bob. What's going on? Nice to see you. Nice to hear from you. You know, I'm five minutes from air, so I can't talk for long time. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. It's going to be Sarah Palin. I was like, who? <laughs> Sarah Palin. I was like, I, who are you, Sarah Palin? Why do you keep saying his name? The Alaskan governor. I was like, the what? She's going to be the vice presidential nominee? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we just had to. i would in know, four and a half minutes of this again, thanks to Harry's incredible brilliance. We were able to like knock together something, and 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 I was, Bobby, you are you are you sure? He's like, sev it's me. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and you know, and I, I that was one of the nicest things about my time in CBS and i, I know I'm probably taking too much time on this part, but there's uh, my my offices were right next to the some of the sixty minute uh, talent. The best part of CBS is this is the incredible people at sixty minutes. you know they're 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 just characters beyond belief. They are not your typical broadcasters by any stretch of imagination. And I got to hang out and meet a lot of them and uh you know they're already there were a lot of them passing away at the time it was the same time the Cronkite died and i went to his funeral which is also remarkable you know for a canadian boy to go and sit in a in the pews with you know matt lowers on the one side and every canadian broadcaster is there i mean american broadcaster is there of note and uh uh to be included in that and then being able to uh, you know to share this was, was a really historic uh, funeral for for cronkite was really remarkable
0: and you talked, Seth, about being in the shark's tank with all the competition and the pressure. CBS News, the early show, at your time, your anchor was Julie Chen. <laughs> Today is better known as the host of Big Brother. But she was the wife of the biggest of the big bosses at CBS, Les Moonves. I'm not asking you to dish the dirt, but what kind of pressure is that?
1: Well, it's, it's you know, Julie is a, a lovely person. And I, you know, you know when, when you're in that pressure cooker of morning television, it, it's like that... Uh, apple uh tv show about the morning news you know where with jennifer aniston it's like it can be a very very fiery environment people are there so much pressure in the morning and and so you know i judy was under enormous pressure of being leslie's wife you know as much as it was pressure for me to try and manage her it was also she did not want to embarrass her her husband. She wanted to be a consummate professional every single day, every time she's on the air, and she put so much effort into it. And was ultimately such a wonderful professional because, you know, she cared so much about not disappointing Leslie and and I'm, that I I'm probably am speaking out of turn here. I shouldn't, but uh, I think that she's uh, incredibly talented, and in, she was in the most difficult position of all the three of us. But, you know, Leslie and I had to figure out a way to manage this, you know, and mostly, mostly he stayed out of it. Mostly he stayed out of it. There were times when he would call up and say, why did you drop Julie's Julie's segment yesterday? And I was like, "Uh, because I put it back on. It was a mistake. And I would still be on the show tomorrow morning. Because, you know, that's just the way you have to do things sometimes. But uh, I I admire both of them. I think Leslie took a big chance on me and making me executive producer very thankful for that opportunity. It was a incredible opportunity to be one of the you know the, the big six in uh in american television news so it was a good time
0: you also had some time with oprah's harpo productions in new york city but I, I wanted to fast forward to november 2017 what brought you back to cbc news in toronto to create the sunday morning flagship show the weekly with wendy mesley
1: well i had started as a as a byproduct of uh uatv the laughter is. i had never lost interest in this idea of uh, people being able to broadcast from wherever they are, of online and create television wherever they are. It was my interest back in 2001. It was my interest in, in 2017. It was, you know, just this is something I'd done. So I created something called Narrative just before uh, Donald Trump was elected because I felt like there was a big movement in the news and people weren't covering that movement. It was sort of ignoring the real Tr- Donald Trump story. And so Narrative was going to do that and I was going to do it from my my condo in in New York, and I started figuring out how to do it using equipment that I uh, didn't have around in 2001, but did have around now in 2017. I could start doing my own broadcasting and, and create my own blog. At the time, I, I started off as a blog, and blog was very interesting because it was like a serialized, uh, week-by-week uh, look at what was going on in the United States as Trump was taking over, exposing everything he was doing. It was really forward-leaning and different from other uh, journalists. And they'd read my blog at the CBC, and they thought, "Well, you know what? If your blog is so terrific, why don't you come here? You can produce it basically under um, under the CBC, thing, CBC umbrella. Do whatever you want; we won't interfere in anything. And uh, and off you go. You'll be able to uh, earn money, which is great because it's a hard thing to earn money out of the blog." And I was like, "Sure, I'll come to Canada and do narrative there, as long as I can, you know, tweet what I want to tweet and and blog what I want to blog." And they said, "Oh, absolutely, absolutely, no problem. It's only going to be two days a week of work, anyhow. It's going to be so easy for you." You know, as it turns out, um, I had this incredible conversation with Wendy Mesley. She was driving through the, uh, the British Columbia, um, and and Wendy was she had never heard, she'd heard of me, but she didn't really like know very much of me. She's like, "Who is this guy?" And I started describing the show I wanted to do, and, and she. You know Wendy's a real uh, rebel, really. Within was a real rebel within the CBC and such a change agent there, and really a talk about another remarkable career cut short. I have no idea. I mean, I understand how things happen in, in Canadian television, but that's a, a misfire on my, in my opinion. But nevertheless, Wendy's a, a remarkable talent, and we put together the show called The Weekly. It was very brave of the CBC to do this. The CBC's standards and journalism are very buttoned down, and to include. This show, under that banner of CBC News, with um, the uh, the standards and practices that they practiced there, was a real challenge for them and for us, because uh, this was a show that was going to expose what was really happening in the world, which means we'd not have 100% definitive uh, proof of anything. You would have mostly 99% or an association or something. Which, you know, You couldn't say Donald Trump was a mobster, even though he was a mobster. But for the C B C to say that would be very, very difficult for them to, to, to use that CBC down. And so it became we we bound our way through there. And the first year there was the first year was actually a very, very remarkable season. We broke a lot of news. Every week we'd be on the air, we broke news and we we changed uh, the narratives if you if you don't mind me using that, because we uh, we actually created some some change in, in Canadian politics, um, week by week by week. And I learned more from the producing team on that show than I've learned from anybody else because they were so inquisitive, so smart. Um, because of their smart journalistic backgrounds from the CBC, we able to use those same standards and practices but utilize, utilize them on this new, different kind of format where we were investigating things in studio. You know, that had never been done at the CBC before. And they they took to it really well and they were terrific. It was a tiny team of four people. It's talking about going from 300 people to four. Um, but it was, uh, it was worth the experience and... And I just credit the CBC for taking the risk on me. I mean, it just wasn't going to work out at the end because they, they at the end, they didn't let me tweet. They, you know, because I and I understand it. I understand why. But I was very pleased that I could have at least a year of 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 you know revenue there to create some content and and really expose some big big news, including aspects of the Cambridge Analytica story, stories that had became real international news. Were you know came out of that CBC weekly show. So is a uh, challenging but it was, it was a great time and i love the show i love the look of that show the crew they were fantastic and uh i'll say the i'll say that Wendy is, is such a you know pushing her into this environment where i was suddenly going to have to do a 20 minute monologue or a 15 minute monologue at the top of the show but, you know as much as wendy's the most seasoned brilliant reporter and producer a presenter out there to be able to do that live on a sunday morning at 11 o'clock I, it was a lot for uh for a talent at the CBC that had never been used to anything like this, and yet she pulled it off brilliantly. So, real real fan of hers.
0: I'm going to amplify that. I'm a huge fan, too. Wendy's been on this podcast. I think CBC treated her horribly. I think she was a victim of, of bad timing as part of it. But she does have a fantastic podcast now with Mo Holloway, The Women of Ill Repute, which people can enjoy and still
1: listen to Wendy. Oh, I can check that out. I didn't know about that. You know, that's you're absolutely right. It is a travesty. I just... Because she's a really terrific uh reporter. I mean she is a journalist. She actually goes in, gets her, you know, her feet, uh, her hands and feet dirty, she'll she'll get the story. She'll get the story. And she has no qualms. She'll find it so no matter what it is, she'll she'll go chase it. It's very rare to find broadcasters who actually chase stories these days. And she's a true journalist and a remarkable talent. And there's not, you know, I don't know why they that there was a very sensitive period of time at the C B C. They were walking on eggshells around a lot of things where, you know what was going on in the United States was crazy compared to what was happening at the CBC. You know, Donald Trump was the president, and and they were worrying about these these silly politically correct things at the CBC, which weren't unnecessary at the time. And I, you know, if there's a way to re- restore her career, I, I wish they would because she's uh, she's just terrific. She really is a very very strong talent.
0: Absolutely, and the podcast is great, so everyone yeah, can uh, give it a shot. I want to ask you about the type of investigative journalism you're doing. Zev, you feel like crowdsourcing is a really powerful tool. Do you want to talk about
1: that? It's incredibly powerful. This is what it, the, the bizarre thing about narrative for me. This uh, this process that I started on on Twitter. You know, is why Elon Musk loves me so much. I broadcast my show on Twitter. as a live show using t- Canadian technology, by the way, Canadian technology called Stage Ten, and I was able to be one of the first people to stream on Twitter live, and it was just so happening. As you know, Donald Trump was being exposed on Twitter, and what Twitter had become during that time, when it was quite quietly building um, its 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 reputation, was a place where independent-minded people could go and research information about what was going on. People would organize themselves. I'd call it the soccer mom revolution because there's like mostly soccer moms. It's interesting who really cared about the future of, of the country were online late at night trying to understand how. Uh, how, what was happening, and trying to piece together what was going on in their country, and they would organize themselves organically but into different into different groups. You ha- you know you have people who will just focus on just Cambridge Analytica, for example, or Donald Trump's history as a as a mobster or and they they collaborate creating this incredible body of knowledge. So I come into Twitter not really understanding that this was going on on Twitter, but wanting to do this show and this part po- in this um this first this blog and then the show. And I was handed this incredible gift of all these people who were already doing all the digging. So for me to compile, compile the narrative that I did on narrative.org, which people should really read, it's an interesting look at what happened in twenty in twenty sixteen onwards. Um, it's due to their credit that I was able to do that because there are, you know, they were able to dig up so much for us as a group and and just feed us that information, and then we were I was able to turn it into. Um, into the into the blog, but then also into the podcast and then they became the the initial audience of the podcast. um and the, and and that's that's where it became very big very, very quickly and a big concern to a lot of people because they, you know, that kind of independent voice broadcasting to Americans had never happened before. like UATV, it circumvented the system. It didn't rely on the broadcasting networks or anything else to, get the message across. I was going right to the audience on Twitter from my home. And it's, you know, the powers that be on both sides of that divide, but probably more on the Elon Musk right, you know, Donald Trump side, were very wary of, of what I could do to their ideals. I mean, they were turning into an operational thing, their 25-year plan to change America. And I I'm, and I'm, was beginning to be a thorn in their side because I was not censored. I didn't have to talk to any news bosses. I could just report what I wanted to report, and uh, and I did. And, um, and you know, that's how, in many ways, we were able to change the narratives of these stories because we were in the source of where these stories were breaking was on Twitter. A lot of these stories were breaking on Twitter. We were able to give them extra oomph and also we were able to discredit the disinformation that was coming in. The disinformation would be happening from the other side, mostly very organized from the Russians or, or the Chinese and we would break it up right away. We'd disprove it right away at its early stages, so they didn't have time to build. And that's um, what, is, in many ways, was very frustrating to them because we we were there was not meant to be this motley crew of people on the on Twitter who were resisting uh, their disinformation efforts. They really was they did not expect us, I don't think. And so the fact that we were there proved to be a real challenge for them.
0: Well, I would like to know from you, Zev, what you're working on at Narrative and. Where can we best follow you and both watch or listen to your podcast, Narrative, with Zev
1: Shalev? Um, I am still doing narrative, and because of Donald Trump, I'm still doing narrative. You know, I would have thought I would have uh, given that up by now, but I am absolutely worried about the future of America and about freedoms in, in the world in general. And, uh, you know, Canadians might think that we're, we're safe here, and of course we are safer than they are in the United States, but a lot of the freedoms that we've won here in Canada are because of the United States. And around the world, the same thing is true, whether it's, you know, race rights or uh, LGBTQ rights or reproductive rights for women or freedoms of speech. All those things are sort of, they came into existence because of the power, or they they sort of entrenched themselves in existence because of the power of Americans and the American system. You know, that system gave us a lot of good. And it's given us a lot of things that are problematic, for sure. But they've also given us a lot of advancement in the last hundred years that without America, you know, we may not be enjoying those same kind of freedoms and the same kind of rights here in Canada and also in the world. And, you know, people might think that this is an American problem and that their democracy is is it may be collapsing, but ours will not really have to rethink that because they are the democracy in the world. They are the country that is truly, truly democratic. They don't have a you know, they don't have a king. Uh, we have a king. Um and so whatever happens in America really matters to Canada. And I hope people take that into heart and begin to look at Canada as uh, the America story as a as a different story, as a story about them being attacked and a story about them having to deal from external forces mostly, but also internal forces. They're being attacked, and the entire system is being challenged. And Canada could do uh, Canadians I uh, we'll often hear t- talk about America as sort of disparaging light and actually be a little bit more. Uh, supportive, I think, um, it, it, of what is going on in in our neighboring countries. If it was happening the other way, they'd be concerned too. If it was more clearly defined as a war, which I think it is, you know, people might be more sympathetic to what is going on there. But it's an information war, but it's still a war. And uh, and you know, there's there's a lot of people very concerned about their futures uh, in the United States. And uh, and narrative is is for them. You know, narrative is about the war on democracy. It's about exposing corruption. It's about telling the story uh, as truthfully as we can in real time. This season is going to be absolutely fantastic. The amount of it, we're doing these very detailed investigations. We've got one coming up about uh, Charlie McGonigal. It's, a, it's the biggest FBI spy scandal in the world. I have a Da Vinci investigation I'm working on. just an incredible story as well. And we'll be covering the elections very, very, very closely. We're very, uh, you know, we're not going to let uh, anyone from the uh, from the autocratic side move too far without being exposed uh that, that's my goal and uh and we'll also you know if we need to reveal stuff about the other side we will too um, I'm I'm not opposed to covering Hunter Biden and those things as well so uh people should check it out it's narrative with Zev Shalev wherever you get your podcast and you can uh, find that uh on a video version on Apple um and as an audio version on Apple so they're two separate podcasts there and you can also watch it live on Twitter now thanks to Elon Musk just to bring it full circle Zad, you got
0: a lot on your plate. You're a busy man. you got a lot ahead of you. So it was truly a, a pleasure to meet you, to talk to you, to hear all your stories from your career.
1: And uh, I look forward to seeing what's next. Andrew, thank you so much. You've done so much good research on this, on this show. You made it such a pleasure to be on here. And thank you very much for putting together this incredible uh, podcast and I hope people support it. And I hope uh, I will support it as well, of course. And uh, and it's, uh, it's great to meet you and uh, terrific to be interviewed by you. You're a great interviewer.
0: Uh, very kind words. Thank you very much. And to the listeners, on behalf of Zev Shalev, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.